Hello and welcome to the Open Labour podcast. My name is James Gibson and I'm joined as always by my co-host Tom Hinchcliffe. Hi Tom, how are you doing? I'm good James, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you Tom, thanks for asking. So today we're going to be talking about the impact that COVID-19 is having on students accessing higher education. And to help us with our discussions, we'll be joined by the University and College Union, UCU, President Vicky Blake, and later on by Kathleen Clark, who is the Open Labour Youth Rep on the National Executive, and who is also running to be Chair of Young Labour. So Tom, I don't think it's hyperbolic of me to say that students in higher education are going through a crisis at the moment. No, students uh, find themselves at the heart of this crisis now. And basically, students were encouraged to go to university throughout the summer, uh, despite warnings from SAGE, which is the government's uh, scientific advisory board, the UCU and the NUS, that this could lead to a massive uptick in COVID-19 cases amongst the student population and then in potentially vulnerable local communities. Sure. Unions and other organisations have been clear in their demands from the start that for the government and universities to deliver a different approach on how teaching was delivered uh, for the first term at least, but it is looking like it'll be needed into next year. Mm. And, and that advice and guidance wasn't followed, was it? No, the universities pretty much carried on with business as usual and the government yeah. stood still. I mean, the consequence of that being now in some areas with large student populations like Nottingham, there's an equivalent of 2,620 COVID cases for every 100,000 residents. Wow. And places like Leeds, Manchester, Exeter, university cities also have huge rates in student areas and the scale of the problem now is huge. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And, and I suppose that's compared to, you know, places like Manchester and other places that have gone into tier three. Um, we're all alarmed that there's 500 cases per 100,000. And yet in these student populations, it's 2,620 per 100,000. That's mm. really just put it into perspective, doesn't it? So it seems that there are, there are a few reasons why universities and the government failed to follow this advice, in my understanding anyway. Firstly, because universities are now primarily funded by tuition fees. Listeners will remember we had Emma Hardy on the podcast a few months ago, and we discussed the issues with this model of funding HE. But just to remind people, so essentially, if students don't go to universities, the universities lose revenue. So if universities advise students that this academic year was going to be mainly online and that the, the expected social element of university, university life would likely be limited, students may have deferred a year or requested partial refunds on their fees or opted for different pathways, I guess. Yeah, and if only some universities advised that they were taking a different approach and students might have opted to go to one of their competitors. The uni up the road offering face-to-face teaching and sports socials. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. the marketization of universities have played a massive role in exacerbating this crisis. I mean, there was a similar lobby from the developers who own the, the huge student accommodation. And uh, I, I guess that's a similar situation, isn't it, then, to... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a clear economic incentive to encourage students to return to halls. Yeah, well, I, I did actually read that purpose-built student accommodation, um, that sector, is worth mm. about $5.5 billion. Yeah, yeah so, the, the, the government has an interest in protecting the sector, don't they? 
unfortunately at the expense of students though yes yeah yeah okay well shall we move on and bring in vicky to help us carry on with the discussion tom yeah let's do it and we're joined now by vicky blake from the university and college union hi vicky how are you hiya thanks for having me i'm all right thanks good good thank you so much for coming on just to start off with then so the UCU has been in the news a lot recently. People would have seen you and Joe on the, on the news and talking about uh, the issues that we're just about to discuss. But I just wanted to ask you, so what's the difference between your role and Joe's role? So Joe Grady is the General Secretary and you're the Union President. What's, what's the difference, just for listeners? So the General Secretary is in effect in charge of the union as a whole and they Mm. there's an election for the general secretary every five years and they are a paid employee of the union Um, whereas i am an elected lay officer so i was elected as vice president and that sort of opens up four years of being a lay officer so you start as vice president you become president elect president immediate past president and you have different duties at different points during that so as president I chair the National Executive Committee meetings and some of its subcommittees. I will chair the part of our annual Congress that brings together the further education and higher education sectors. When I was Vice President and President-elect, I chaired the HE, so the higher education parts of those structures, so the higher education conferences and the higher education committee. Um, So we're a lay member-led union. Policy is set by lay members in congress and sector conferences Mm. but the general secretary i'm trying to avoid using the kind of corporate (laughs) um, but it's like the the, almost like the ceo of a union except we don't say things like ceo and unions so joe will have responsibility for managing the staff and the staffing structures whereas the Mm. layoffs don't have anything to do with that and an, an important difference i suppose is that i remain an employee of my university that I I work at anyway and what happens is I take the same salary and the union simply pays the university for my time Um, so it's not on the job structure of the union um, so to speak. Cool thank you yeah you're at the University of Leeds aren't you because obviously we're um, recording at the moment listeners will know from Leeds Tom and I both live in Leeds and and you work for Leeds yes I work for the University of Leeds so I'm 100% brought out to be president of UCU at the moment Mm. um, but I am still an employee there and I'm still an officer on the committee at Leeds UCU branch as well and we both went to the University of Leeds as well so we're all (laughs) we've all got something in common there in fact who was it that we had on Tom that we're all laughing about about Jermaine Jermaine Jackman Jermaine Jackman was on who's running for Labour's NEC and he uh he was in I think the year below me at uni and we kind of recognized each other and (laughs) yeah (laughs) it was very strange but yeah great yeah keep having people on alumni from University of Leeds we'll have to get Keir Starmer on next he's a famous alumni we'll be getting some angry angry comments from other kind of Russell Group (laughs) universities that are very angry about us being Leeds centric but I don't really care (laughs) (laughs) there we go do you want to tell us a little bit uh, please Vicky about your uh, the UCU's campaign that a lot a lot of people will know about at the moment obviously it's so important it's the campaign um, well I I don't want to sort of summarize the campaign and say this is what the campaign is but obviously it's the it's it's to do with uh, COVID-19 the fact that a lot of students 
were told to go back to university, go back to halls, uh, and also that it was safe to have in-person tuition. We've been operating on the hashtag move online now um, yeah. and I think yeah. it's also very much linked to our fund the future campaign which is actually across the whole of post-16 sure. education mm. and obviously there are some specific parts to that that are around higher education. Um, since the summer uh, as you've said we have been arguing very strongly that universities needed to be online for that first term and you know when we first started to put that message out we got a bit of a mixed response because obviously students weren't back at university yet we could see people were talking about the signs of a second wave but we've just spent summer being encouraged to go out um, by the government and to yep eat out and to go to mm -hmm. the pubs and and lots of confusion about the rules and things and what we were doing was looking at the science and we were talking to the independent sage panel as well as looking at what was coming out of sage we were looking at we, obviously we have scientists within our own membership because we represent staff who work in universities that includes researchers and we were looking across at what had happened in the US and over the summer in the US they have an early return to campus for a lot of their athletes and they'd seen a real trend in when you return to on campus in person activity you see a rise in cases. Um, there was a Time magazine article in July that came out that I still remain astounded that apparently no vice chancellor in the UK seems to have read or taken it to heart. There's been a lot of coverage in the American media about, you know, they should have known um, why on earth haven't they planned better for these eventualities. So we had an opportunity looking at the US context and also looking across parts of Europe where they tend to go back slightly earlier than we do for university terms. We had an opportunity yeah. to look at that and we were really arguing the science is telling us it is not safe to move. Mm a million students around yeah. the UK, including some who'd be traveling from outside the UK as well, but to move around the UK forming new households at exactly the time that we're seeing more restrictions coming in for people because the, the risk is rising yeah. again and the transmission rate is rising again. And we went through a few weeks of um, various commentators trying to imply that we were being hysterical. It's not lost on me that the union is currently led by women and those are the kinds of narratives that we were hearing coming out there. Really? Uh, like, like what? Uh, Sorry. Um, well, okay, so you've got a, a woman general secretary, president, yeah. a woman chairing um, yeah. the HE and the FE sector, yeah. and policies that we're putting out and the, the campaigns that we're putting out around health and safety over coronavirus, yeah. and we're being spoken to as if we're overreacting. Yeah. I've heard, um, I heard, I think it was something like a pro-vice chancellor um, of Northumbria before they moved to online about a week before responding in a radio interview to questions about UCU's position with well that's one view but we take this view and you know at that yeah. time we had 770 confirmed student cases mm. on the campus and we're still trying to imply that what we were suggesting was over the top Only and it wasn't just you was it that was suggesting that because sage at all so you you were following the science weren't you obviously from from the, the, the 
uh, evidence that have been collated from around the world, as you've just said. But Sage, the government's own advisory body, um, you know, was was pretty clear um, saying that the and made a statement saying that there needs to be a clear statement about online teaching for further education and higher education, which could have uh, could avoid institutions believing that they have to maintain in-person tuition to uh, remain competitive. I paraphrase that a little bit, but that so it wasn't just your voice as uh, as the um, union representing universities and, and, and students, but it was also the government's own advisory body, wasn't it? Well, we now know, of course, that the government was ignoring the SAGE um, advice. And sure, yeah. it, it transpired recently, didn't it, that there was a series of measures that SAGE recommended in around about the middle of September, um, and it was including things like move everything online apart from the mm. essential, which is the yeah. same as we've been saying um, since August and before, really. Um, and also, we were working with, there's obviously the independent SAGE panel as well, and there are people mm. who have contact with both of those panels. There are lots and lots and lots of scientists from different yeah. parts of, whether we're talking about behavioural science, whether we're talking about virology, whether we're talking about epidemiology. It was very, very clear that the science was telling us that it simply isn't safe to assume that because you yeah. put education in front of something it magically makes the virus behave differently i mean the virus doesn't kind of feel afraid it's going to be put in detention it mm. operates <laughs> as a virus you know yeah. and so we have been saying this for a long time but we didn't pluck that out of nowhere we based our position on the science and because we are a union of people who care about health and safety and who employ critical thinking um and what this has kind of led to now that what's been revealed i suppose is what we suspected all along is that there are a lot of questions around why university yeah. leaders are behaving the way they are there's a yeah. lot of questions around the, why the government is behaving the way that they are now i mean yeah. from start to finish the government has clearly been woefully underprepared mm. has wasted so much time i am so angry at how much time has been wasted when we should have been seeing them prioritize get a proper test and trace system in rather than bunging a load of cash to their mates at circo you know it it doesn't function properly still we're in october we're approaching towards the end of october now we've we've known we needed a, a proper test and trace system for really quite some time and i could probably rant about that for a full hour um, but in terms of universities, there's two levels at which there have been failure at a very senior level of mm. management and leadership. So you have a failure of leadership at the governmental level where there is a failure to invest properly in universities, a failure to recognise that the marketised model of education that we have in, in universities and higher education more broadly has failed us, has led to a, a competitive situation where universities have spent the summer scrabbling over yeah. each other. And that's what Sage was pointing to, wasn't it, in that statement? They understood the politics of that, of a, of a failing sort of system, yeah. Absolutely. And, and so we've had a summer of this spin about the possibility of a quote unquote COVID safe or COVID secure campus and the student experience. Earlier today, I was told that some of our members have been receiving emails trying to pressure them to go in on campus, still referring to the need for a vibrant campus experience. I mean, during a I pandemic, is anything vibrant at the moment? I don't feel very vibrant. So, you know, it, 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 and I don't think that people who are in fear of their health, you know, 
having to wipe seats down before and after they teach, worrying about the ventilation in the classrooms, worrying about what the science around the aerosols tells us, you know, I don't think they're going to be feeling dead vibrant either. Mm. Um, but, you know, we're still hearing this message. So we've had a government waste this summer. We've had our senior leaders across the university sector this summer as well, because what they should have been doing is working not only together across universities in a more cooperative way, but also with us, with UCU, with other trade unions who represent staff on campus and student unions in a really meaningful consultation around how we're going to get the sector through this, how we're going to support students, how we're going to support staff, mm. how we're going to avoid redundancies at the very time that students need more support. And, you know, you have to remember how much a part of our economy the university sector is and it's it's kind of immediate jobs in terms of who's employed in them but also the way that it drives research and, and discovery and how that needs to be part of the driver of our recovery from the economic crisis that's resulting from covid so yeah. what we've had instead is wishful thinking instead of listening to the science and paying proper attention to health and safety as if you can magic away the threat that this virus poses at various times we've heard you know insinuations that young people won't get it that badly when you cannot guarantee that but also not every student is young also mm. members of staff who go on and off campus have got families have got commitments have got caring responsibilities Students and staff will have a variety of pre-existing conditions that mean they're more vulnerable and it increases massively the risk to the communities that our universities sit within. And this is something that I think we're starting to see this. You know, if you go on to um, a university related story in a local newspaper online and you look at the comments section and you start to see some of the vitriol that's there and the blame that's being directed towards students. I absolutely accept we all of us have to take responsibility for our actions and how we behave. And I accept that there are examples out there of people not doing what they're supposed to do. But by and large, like there are in any any section of society as well. Of course. You know, students aren't magically different from the rest of society. And most students, like most people in the UK, are worried and scared and are doing their best to comply with the very confusing instructions that they've received, but that, you know, are out there. And what we're seeing is this narrative around blaming students for increasing coronavirus in the areas that it's spiked. And I mean, for, if you take Devon as an example, I know that the University of Exeter is connected to quite a significant rise in that area. We're seeing that in other places as well. But whichever way, whichever part of the UK you look at, whichever way you cut it, moving a million students around the UK to form new households in often quite cramped conditions and this is something else that was picked up in SAGE and Independent SAGE commentary was around the fact that student accommodation is usually quite squidged in you know you, you live in close yes. proximity to a lot of people um, that was always going to be dangerous and it was always going to exacerbate the infection rate and it was always going to put more people at risk and that is the students, the staff and then everyone that we come into contact with. So commuting in and out of, you know, campus, um, going about our daily lives, you know. Yeah, caring I mean, the, the socioeconomic conditions are interesting because you'd have thought that the government would have seen this coming in that the socioeconomic conditions of underprivileged areas were much more affected in the, in the first wave in, in March and April. And they immediately called for a, a Public Health England investigation into that. And that kind of concluded quickly that areas that had higher levels of poverty, areas that had higher level of low skilled jobs, 
which students hold part-time and, and travel into university on public transport and as you say living living quite poor housing conditions sometimes mm-hmm. are more likely to contract this virus and spread it around their communities where vulnerable people live so and I know you said earlier about independent sage and sage it's very striking that independent sage were formed initially to kind of scrutinize the, the government's mm-hmm. own advice but on this they've been in relative harmony and and it's beggars belief that universities have kind of partially i know they've partially implemented some of the ucu's demands now because it couldn't exactly go any further without but what needs to be done now on top of what the universities have already put in place albeit too late to kind of avoid further infections because i know there's there's some areas now like leeds and manchester that areas of students the infection rate is actually coming down just in time for the tier three restrictions to come into place so i don't i don't know if if, if you've got any thoughts on that just before we go into that we've already sort of we've talked about it but we've not been explicit about it why do you, why do you think that this was allowed to happen i mean you know you've already alluded to it but i think there's there's a couple of reasons is it why why do you think that's the case um in terms of from universities and and university leaders I think there's a bit of hiding behind government guidance going on whilst panicking about the bottom line. And and what I think they should have done is joined with UCU in lobbying for a proper funding package, one that didn't have a load of strings attached to it that would lead to kind of a two or three tier system within higher education, you know, without the sorts of strings that lead to decisions being made to close down arts and humanities degrees and, and, and lay stuff off. We needed a proper funding package to support universities from the beginning to remove that element of the competitiveness and the kind of panic that that produces. But they didn't. They kind of carried on in that quite neoliberal, marketized university kind of sort of, I don't know how best to describe it, but it's basically an absolute pantomime over the summer of universities trying to make out like they're going to have a good student experience and it'll you'll hardly notice that covid is a thing because we've got covid secure campus as if it's you know something you can paint on the doors and windows and it will magically keep covid out and that's not how it works all you could ever do was mitigate not remove the risks um so that, that, that's what i'm getting at with there is a government failing here but there is also a serious failure of university leaders who, let's remember, are paid quite a significant amount of money. Mm. Because, and we're always told it's because of the decisions yeah. we've got to make. And we have yeah. seen a complete absence of any kind yeah. of courageous leadership. And to just pick up on something that you were saying a second ago, Tom, you were talking about you know, the measures that universities have taken now. Well, what universities have taken what measures? Because they've taken different measures they're at different stages of, of where they are and there are different levels of clarity to the communication. So we have seen some move pretty much everything that can be online, but are they doing that for the whole of this term or are they doing it and saying they're going to review every couple of weeks or every week? Because that seems to be the pattern rather than commit to, okay, we recognize that we've made an error here. So everyone could plan properly. So everyone can have a bit more stability we're going to go online as much as possible, you know, apart from these specific situations where we need to have very, very rigorous um, measures around them. We're going to be online as the default and we're going to have a plan for how to help you if you're a student who wants to get back home that will release you from your accommodation, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, 
but no they haven't done that they have had a sort of piecemeal approach so even when Northumbria moved online they're talking about reviewing it regularly and maybe this is what you meant by we've sort of gone around the issue and not sort of said it out loud directly but there are questions over why that is and they're financial questions aren't they they're questions about motivations Mm. um i would like to know each university has got something somewhere on their website or somewhere in their terms and conditions around how they handle fee liability if students take the decision to drop out of their course and how much of their fees they will be liable for now i don't want any student who has gone to university, who started a course full of hope, you know, for their own future and what that's going to mean to them. I don't want any of them to be in a position where they feel like they need to drop out. But I think universities have been panicking about if they don't provide the kind of shiny prospectus student experience on campus side of things, if they don't provide all of that, because they now view their students as customers and students themselves are encouraged to view themselves as customers, they're worried that they're going to have students dropping out and not wanting to pay all their fees. And that will play into the issue that we've got here with funding and and a real concern around the knock-on effect that will have on university budgets. So you can see how that's connected to the issue of needing a proper funding, just a proper announcement now about funding and how the government needs to underwrite universities so that they don't stuff. But what really gets me, and it, it, it really distresses me because higher education, education more broadly, is not a product that you pick up off a shelf. It's something that you engage with. It's something that you interact with. It's something that students who are learning online are still getting. They're not getting it in the same way that they might have expected. They're not getting it in the same way that they might have hoped, but it has value and there are staff behind this who are busting a gut to do everything they can to provide a really decent high quality education experience that actually being as it's safer and as we were saying just now you know you're not panicking about wiping the seats and how you're going to queue in the corridor and what's going to happen if you need to go to the loo and do the windows open and all of that if you're actually doing that online in the way that we're doing this podcast you are free to think and open your mind up and ask all those questions and you can see people's faces if you've got your cameras on in a way that you can't in a room on campus that you're in just for the sake of being on campus in person. So they've really missed the trick because what they could have done is got together, spoken to us. We've been asking since the the news really started to hit them. We knew we were in trouble in sort of February, March. We were asking them in our negotiations that we had around our dispute over paying conditions. We were asking them to talk to us about COVID and we would put off and put off and put off. We get to July, we're saying, you've got to move things online. You've got to commit to this. Please, you know, work with us. All through since March, we've been trying to get Universities UK and UCA to work with us in lobbying the government. And, and now let's look at where we are. We're in a mess. Mm. So I can sit here and I can sit on any number of interviews that I do and say, we told you so, we were right, you were wrong. But the fact is we now have students all over the UK in anguish, actually, in, in quite a lot of distress and their families mm, as well, really worried yeah. about them. And the communities around the universities, as we've been saying, are obviously very concerned that that, that the universities there are going to be exacerbating the situation that we've got. And what we need now 
is some sensible thinking to break out. We need some adults in the room. We need yeah. to have, you know, an immediate move to online and to implement those SAGE recommendations mm. so that we can create some space and some room to work out the plan that they should have had all along, which they clearly didn't have. How are we going to safely provide the students who need to move back home a safe yeah. passage to do so? So that's testing, that's thinking about transport and also how are we going to support the students that need to remain because that is their home and we need more investment in mental health support for students and staff all of whom are overloaded and overwhelmed by this at the moment yeah and we need we really really do need a financial guarantee to come out from the government that universities will be protected against the loss of income related to covid yeah. and I, more generally, you know, broaden broad this, as, as I've already said, and you won't be surprised to have heard me say it because we have a policy at UCU that we don't believe that tuition fees are fair. We, we don't think that you should be charged for going to university in the way that students are at the moment. But we need to look at this model. It's broken. It needs to change. I mean, we need to move to a more stable and long-term sort of directly funded model of higher education because if we had that already in place we would not be in the same kind of mess that we're in right now can i just ask you quickly about the support you've had from students and staff and your members on this i mean i know i've I've seen a lot of i know the leeds labor mps did it but a lot of labor mps across the country responded to ucu's campaign quite positively i know the shadow education secretary uh, kate green has made comments before that leaving home to go to university should be a momentous and exciting mm. step for young people and their families. But obviously this crisis has changed all that. What kind of support have you had from, from not even members of the UCU, just students on campus? Do, do they agree with this? Cause I have heard, well, I've see, you, you see the social media posts all the time saying nine grand for what, if, if it's all mm. online, it doesn't feel like that they're actually getting the support. So, they deserve, so. so I think that's really interesting um, to unpick because there has been a lot of support from students and of course the NUS has also you know supported our position and they represent a lot of students in the UK mm. but talking to students um, at, you know there are campaigns emerging at, at uni level so it's it looks slightly different at each university but there are campaigns that students have started to move online there are campaigns that students have started because they want refunds of their accommodation they might want refunds part of their fees now the fees issue is is a tough one because we just don't believe they should be being charged fees in the first place and we have a different vision of education so that we think it should be more progressively funded but I can well understand a student who's paying the amount that they're paying or entering into the amount of debt that they're entering into and thinking like, is this fair? Because this isn't what I was quote unquote sold. But I think that misses what an education is all about and, and the quality of the education that they're getting from the staff that's supporting them. Now, in order to be able to continue providing an excellent education and to support students, staff need that investment too. And at quite a number of universities now, we have threats hanging over us of redundancies. And we've already had over the summer a lot of staff who are on precarious contracts, so not permanent contracts, lose their work over the summer and there's a lot of instability there for a long long time before covid was even you know anything anyone had heard of we've been arguing that the importance of having secure work for staff for student support and student experience and that has really been magnified in this crisis but what we're finding and i think as the reality on campus has unfolded students who maybe were a bit 
you know, uncertain of why UCU were arguing for moving everything online, have become quite frightened in the situations that they're in. We're hearing quite a lot from students who started off sceptical and actually now really do just want to be able to move online. They might want to move home, that they're sick of having been given really rubbish food packages when they're in isolation in their flats. They've been locked away, they're being blamed in their local media. Um, but of course, there will be a diversity of opinion among students, but I think we're really seeing that shift. And something that really struck me, um, I went for a walk um, a couple of weeks ago, just near where I live, and was trying to playing this social distancing kind of dance that you play when you get to a gate and you're trying to move around someone. And we were kind of joking about it. <laughs> and I said something like, oh, I'm just glad to get in the fresh air away from all of the online meetings for a bit. And he said, oh, what do you do? So we start talking about what I do. And he was like, oh, my son has just gone to Swansea and we really thought we were doing the right thing by him going away. And he's been there a week and, and it just unleashed it, the, the amount of God. anger and pain because his son is an adult, but a young adult and has moved away. And exactly as you were saying, Kate Green talking about the wonder that you should have when you start uni mm. and he will never get that chance back again. And he feels like he's been let down. And this guy, you know, I, I'm a Labour member. I um, have never voted Tory ever. But this guy openly admitted to me that he is a Conservative voting person normally, but he is absolutely shocked and horrified by what's going on. The government's response more broadly, but it's really brought it home to him, the effect it's had on his son. Yeah. And I think mm. this is the thing. A lot of people know someone in their family someone in their extended family someone amongst their friendships has got a family member affected by this this is a lot of people and a lot of communities yeah it was similar with the a-level results fiasco wasn't it i mean it gave uh, not necessarily just tories but parents it gave them a personal view of this and it brought it right down to earth for a lot of people so i wouldn't be surprised if this carried on any longer, which it looks like it is going to, they'll get punished in university areas at local elections next year. Well, and I mm. think that people are connecting the dots between the fiasco over A-levels and B-techs. I mean, it wasn't only A-levels, it was also B-techs as yes. well, and the knock-on effects for GCSEs. I think people are connecting the dots between that, between what's happening in universities at the moment, and where the government's priorities really are. And, you know, and what I was saying earlier about the different levels of failure in leadership here, you know, what are the priorities of the people in charge of these institutions as well? There's a lot of difficult questions there. According to The Guardian, uh, they had the scoop on this, as it were. The government's plan is to uh, lock universities down from the 8th of December to the 22nd of December, when all mm -hmm. students would then be allowed to return to their hometowns. What's, what's your, your view on this? Because... If it doesn't happen, then what's the alternative? I mean, it's unthinkable that students will be locked in their homes and unable to return home to spend Christmas with their families. I'm sure that would be an extremely lonely time and have some horrendous mental health impacts for Definitely. consequences for some students. Well, all students, I imagine. Yeah. And there'll be some students listening to this podcast that are understandably really anxious about not being able to go home or the idea of being locked down for two weeks as it is. So I wondered what the UCU's take was on this. So I, uh, just what you've described and how upsetting it would be and everything. The thing is, that's the reality of, of what quite a lot of students are dealing with right now in October. Christmas has been chosen, I think, as a way of deflecting the issues that we've got right now. And it's quite an emotive thing, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, mm. you're used to there being a winter break that you would go back and have with your family and so on and so forth. We need a plan that provides safe passage so we're talking about a plan that involves proper testing 
that enables students to safely travel back to wherever they need to be without posing additional risk to their families once they get there and for them to be released from accommodation charges and so on if that's what they need right now. We also need to recognise that not every student has a different home, that some students learn from home, you know, they, they don't move away from university and they're still at risk when they're going on and off campus. And also some move to where they go to university and that is their one home. So there's a breadth of experience there of students that's not really being recognised in the government's kind of spin on this issue. Mm. So I don't want to see students miserable uh, in lockdown for two weeks before Christmas and I don't want to see them miserable now but we have to have a plan that will provide them with that safe passage and I think anyone as we've been talking about you know it doesn't this virus doesn't distinguish whether you're a student or not if you are at risk if you are around other people and you've been told to isolate you need to isolate but we need a plan that will provide students with safe passage to where they need to be and that plan needs to start now and this is where what i was saying earlier about having a piecemeal approach of like we'll we'll go online for a bit but then we'll review we'll go online for a bit and then we'll review that doesn't work with the reality of what is happening to students in halls of residence in student accommodation or who are learning from you know their home and and didn't move away the yeah. reality is right now there is a huge problem it, the, it to be really clear this situation should never ever have been allowed to happen but it has there is now no perfect solution but the safest way forward is to move online as far as is humanly possible and to invest in well coordinated support packages for students and that means testing is key it always was and working with staff and student unions as, as should have been happening from the beginning and as we asked in a really genuinely collaborative way and that is how we will get students to be on a more even keel and to feel more supported and it goes back to what i was mm. saying before as well about needing more funding for mental health support and for the support of the staff who are supporting students mm. to give you an idea staff that i know at different universities they might be teaching staff they might be professional services staff they might be support staff we all have different sorts of jobs in universities all of us care really deeply about the education we provide and the students that we provide it for and we're all in bits about how students are being treated mm. we're all in bits about what it must be like to have made that leap to go to university or to be coming back for your second or third year or what have you, you know whatever stage you're at and to be experiencing this and it's a real I think the word is like a, a cognitive dissonance between what students have been led to believe about how much an institution cares about them as a, an individual and what they're actually experiencing. Mm -hmm. When you unwrap a overpriced package containing pot noodles and that's your care package from the university, yeah. when your university hasn't set up a proper system so that cleaners don't necessarily know for sure which flats are isolating for COVID, and maybe not even turning up with proper PPE. These are all things we're hearing directly from students. And these are all things that university leaders have to get to grips with now. It's no good deflecting to December and talking about December when we have a problem right now. And if we start dealing with that problem right now, if we move online mm. across all universities as far as is humanly possible right now, it creates the space yeah. for having a sensible plan to get everyone where they need to be. And I think Christmas, as I said, it's an emotive thing. No one wants to be on their own over that period. 
but that is not the only period that people don't want to be in that situation for. Mm. And if we don't get to grips with it right now, December is going to be 10, 20, 50 times worse. Do you think being treated like a number, as you put it, and uh, is kind of indicative of the wider concept of a consumer-based monetary model of universities? And it's kind of the culmination of the, the long-standing, well, decade-long uh, drive towards a profiteering system. Well, it's interesting, Tom, that you say that and, and asking that question, because I, I've read a really interesting article probably in the guardian i can't remember it was basically saying that um there was a study that that said that young people in in england around the sort of age of going to university so it was it wasn't directly saying students but it spoke about students but the study wasn't just for people in in further education but people of that age are six times more likely now to be suffering from psychological problems than they were uh, a generation ago so from a, a similar study that took place in 1995 and it was you know basically saying that young people have had such a bad deal because uh, there's been huge cuts to social work and youth services and of course mental health services as well and when they sort of arrive at university uh, in this difficult very stressful sort of times and obviously there's you know universities uh, for a lot of people and well most people is is, it's a wonderful experience but nevertheless it has a lot of challenges and people are away from home and, and stressed all of that culminates into you know a really difficult time and there's just not the support there universities don't have the support there to be able to support the students and as a result of that there's there's a, an increase in instances of suicide and of course as, as the study said the sort of broader psychological issues that the students are facing so is that is that a link between this debt since 2012 and this change to the way that we fund our universities and increase in tuition fees is that all linked together i wonder I think it, it has to be. And I think you're talking about some really broad societal shifts that have impacted young people on all kinds of different levels. And, and we're not mm. just talking about students who go to university, but we're also talking about things that will affect the chances of students getting to university in, in those. The, I think it's really important that we recognise something that you just said, which is that going to university is it's, it's meant to be exciting. It's meant to be this brilliant thing, but it's also quite scary and challenging mm. and no matter how confident a student presents to you as being I guarantee you there will be some doubt in their mind about some aspect of that experience and something that they're worried about my day job if you like um, when I'm not being president um, of UCU is working in widening participation so I actually work with students who are younger than university students who are thinking about going to university and I tend to work on projects with students who might encounter various barriers to accessing higher education and we work with them to try and help them overcome those barriers and I know because it's my job and I work with those students that there is so many things that they're worrying about when they're picking their university. Will they fit in? What will it be like? Is university for a person like me? You know, there's a lot of myths and things around what that experience is going to be like. You take that and you add a pandemic, huge levels of stress. You take that and you add a mismanaged pandemic with very, very poor leadership and well lack of leadership from the government and an absence of any kind of courageous leadership from senior managers of universities by and large you have just a situation where students will be feeling how much more atomized they are by that 
approach to treating them as a, a consumer or a customer of the university and it affects staff as well because you know we're working in this context too where um, staff are getting really stressed and worried about the feedback they're going to get from the the teaching that they're doing i mean that we know that there's um, studies in the bias that you get in feedback forms and stuff with teaching generally anyway mm. um, but there's a lot of concern amongst staff that that if they have to teach this was at the beginning when you know if i have to teach from home because i've got you know a condition that makes me vulnerable or if i've got vulnerable family members or what have you am i going to get worse feedback that then ties in with the issue of if you're on an insecure contract and how likely you are to be first up you know for a redundancy or for not having your contract renewed these things are all connected this is all part of the same problem and the problem at its heart is that the higher education system is funded in completely the wrong way and that that kind of market that has been inserted into higher education has completely disrupted what education is supposed to be about it's distorted the value of education it's become around you know oh well what's your graduate salary going to be when we know that there are loads and loads of jobs that we suddenly realized that we appreciated a lot more than you know the media would have had you believe um, when we were in lockdown in March. So if we had a directly funded, more stable model of higher education where students weren't paying huge tuition fees in the way that they currently are, then we would be in a better position. But I think that on its own won't, you know, we need a shift, but that on its own isn't enough to undo all the kind of consumerist sort of narratives that we're sold every day in our media and so on and so forth. But students who are struggling in these conditions i mean i'm not surprised we know that our staff who work as counselors and other forms of student support are themselves struggling mm. because of the weight of, of responsibility and the huge enormous workload of trying to support everyone who needs it the waiting well, what, what impact does this have on the future of university teaching and higher education because if if staff are struggling so much as you're saying, even the councillors are struggling and things like that, then what, where does that leave essentially a privately funded model that relies on people to go there and staff? What, what, what happens then? Do, do, do staff leave? Is, is there no mental health services because all the councillors have had enough and gone? So, I mean, if you I need to unpick that question a bit because some staff are leaving, some staff are, some excellent, excellent staff mm. are leaving the university sector because it is no longer what, they understand it should be about and they, they don't want to be complicit anymore and we're losing brilliant people and I'm not only talking about lecturers and researchers I am also talking about people who are absolutely brilliant at the student support side of things brilliant you know logistics people we're losing people from the sector because of that and that will be exacerbating some of the problems that, that we're seeing and we're talking about but we're also losing students i think I, I will not be surprised if i see a dent in the confidence of students applying to university in the next few years and i think again that crosses I mean, over with the problem it's hard enough isn't it it's hard enough anyway getting shoved into all that debt especially if you come from a working class area or a poorer area and then you've got this on top of it so it's going to be a no-brainer for some students not, to, not these, to apply these are conversations that i have with students that i work with around you know what can university do for me and we try and keep away from it being a sort of transactional like well financially you'll be better off it has to be about 
what it gives to your life and what opportunities it opens up and, and what have you. And everyone serves to have an opportunity like that if that's what's right for them, just as everyone serves if that isn't what's right for them to have something else. But I am worried that we'll lose students and staff directly through this current crisis, but that it will have knock-on effects to the level of diversity and the um, ability of people to access university, whatever their backgrounds mm. in future. I'm really, really concerned about that. I think that's a massive problem. And we're already seeing, I mean, I've said it already, I'll say it again. We're in dispute with the sector over our paying conditions. And it is a lot about the insecurity of the contracts, the huge pay gaps that we've got. We've got race and gender and disability pay gaps. You know, we have a workload problem that was already making people really sick before this began and it's now being exacerbated. These things are all bound together in this completely broken model and it needs to be changed. Now, right now we're in an emergency and overnight it can't be, you know, immediately snap your fingers and it's changed. But a funding package right now to underwrite the losses that universities will be encountering from COVID-19 would really, really help and would make it much easier for senior leaders to make the right decisions, the simple and safe decisions that are easy for everyone to understand and that will protect students, will protect staff and protect their communities. And then we need to be having those bigger conversations. But what I'm worried about is that the government and its agenda at the moment, you know, you can see that there is an element of culture war going on here. You can see it in the measures that were announced um, to begin with, you know, funding with strings, this talk about some degrees being worth more than others. And you also see that reflected in the absolute, I'm trying to think of the right word, but the disgrace of how the creative arts sector is being treated at the moment with a completely inadequate funding package that sets people adrift and they're told to retrain, you know, well, good luck retraining for jobs that don't exist at the other end of it because every single sector is being affected by this crisis and well, we it's, have it's, it's the same yeah. attitude as the the whole viable and non-viable jobs argument for the job exactly. retention scheme isn't it i mean the culture war we all know the government are very keen on you know inserting that into every possible department you can possibly have because it, it it's proven to work electorally for them whether they get anything done in government while in while enacting that strategy is a different thing but just a word on just as a final word i think on government strategy do you think they're obviously kicking the can down the road on this it, it, it seems like a circuit breaker or whatever people want to call it or national some form of national restrictions that would affect students as well as the general population everybody else are inevitable so to a lot of people i mean it just seems like they're delaying and deflecting and obviously they are using this save christmas attitude to try and get people to either follow the restrictions or to kind of show the public that they are working towards some sort of goal but this is obviously a make-believe target that the virus is not going to just stop circulating because we all want to go home for christmas or, or go see his families and have loads of food what do you think to the effectiveness of that strategy obviously it's a deflecting strategy for now but do you think it's actually going to cut any kind of weight with with the student population and with staff do you think it's going to make them any more confident in the government's policies or not no, because as I said, they're experiencing the reality on the ground right now, which yeah. is students in lockdown, which is whole groups of, of students in isolation, staff who are having to go in and out of isolation. Let's also not forget that lots of staff have got families and so do lots of students. So if you've got in your family, 
kids at school, they might be going in and out of, of isolation as year groups and bubbles and so on and so forth. So, mm. you know, no, it, it's not convincing, is it? Because it's not working right now. So just magically hoping that we'll have a bit of time to come up with something that will work by Christmas. No, I, I, I'm, I'm so angry that it's really difficult to articulate sometimes. But I, I think a circuit breaker, um, and we're seeing, obviously, they, they put something in place in Wales now. I think a circuit breaker probably is what we need, but it's not without pain. And it needs to come with real, decent financial, like economic support for areas that need it. And, and, and across the economy, we've got people who have long been precarious, thrown into complete disaster. And we've got people who've actually long assumed that they were doing all right, that they were fairly secure, suddenly discovering that they're not as secure as they thought they were. And the foundations beneath their feet aren't quite what they thought. So we're in a situation at the moment, I think it's really dangerous um, for the society that we're in, but the government as well as, as an extension of that. This could get out of control really quickly. And what we need, and, and this has been part of the problem since the beginning, is some direct, clear and honest communication. Um, and I think we're starting to see protests, aren't we, around the idea of further lockdowns and further measures and things. And I understand why people are frustrated and I understand that people are scared. And I also understand that they're looking at everything that's been rolled out in the last few months and they're thinking like, well, I can't even make head or tail of the instructions we've been given at different times. Government ministers don't understand their own instructions and people in their administration have gone about doing whatever they wanted anyway and don't seem to have had any consequences. I mean, that, so I that, has, that has huge consequences for public confidence doesn't it and and when the time comes for a vaccine we have a few people in my job that that sit on some local authority boards and they look at you know public confidence in vaccines and public and how that links to dominic cummins and things that the government ministers have done where they've broken lockdown and broken the rules themselves and the the smp mp um that decided to travel on from westminster with knowing she had COVID Matt hancock more recently drinking yeah and then the, hancock in his in his chauffeur car without a mask on i mean the government no no he was it he was drinking in a commons bar wasn't he after, after sorry uh, yeah yeah that's, i think he got there in the uh in the car but did it? Oh, he got there in the car, did he? Yeah, so with two in one. <laughs> so yeah, two in one. But the the prime minister, he's literally just announced. He's doing his presser now, and he's just announced that that they're going to impose these restrictions on, on to Manchester. Greater Manchester yeah. without without the, the funding that they asked for. I mean, this is it's like seeing into the future for for other areas, especially university towns, surely, because this is the consequence of kicking the can down the road. They they left it and left it and imposed weaker restrictions without adequate funding for universities. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't, so people couldn't stay off work. There was no self-isolation isolation mm -hmm. financial package for a while. And it's still not good enough. Yeah, this is what I mean by you, you don't have to look at Christmas for what's going to happen. You know, you look at now because we have problems now. And to Manchester was on my mind actually when we were talking about it just now because you know, it, it seems to me that the local authorities have been really very clear about what they need for Manchester yeah. and that it needs to come with proper funding package to make those restrictions possible to comply with. I don't know how well expecting ordinary people on the ground to comply with those extra restrictions is going to go, given that they know that there's been these arguments between the kind of local and, and UK level. And I think this is another example of really poor communication, a refusal to listen from this government that 
when you really boil it down, puts lives at risk. You know, and, and the cavalier attitude that they have taken to the lives and the long-term health impacts on the public should be really instructive to us. We should really be thinking about what that tells us about what the government currently in charge of this country really thinks about its population and how much it really cares about the more vulnerable parts of those populations, you know, where we've known that throughout lockdown, people were going to work in unsafe conditions. We know that there was transmission in garment factories, for example. I think around Leicester, there was a real issue around that. And that lots of blame has been put onto certain communities. And let's not forget that there's a horrible kind of element of how inequality becomes exacerbated through what we're seeing in this crisis but how this crisis is being used to drive further inequality. I was really frightened to see coverage of the protest that was in Leeds the other day of, um, you know, anti-lockdown, you know, mm. we don't want a vaccine, we don't want this, we don't want that. People who, by and large, I think at that protest probably really scared, but there was a far-right element in that. Yeah. And there is a lot of racism going around and there's a lot of nastiness going on in the discourse around this virus where populations are being blamed when it's actually a structural issue and it's there's so many layers to this there's so many layers to the failure of this government that i think it's quite difficult for people to sometimes be able to just grasp it all at once mm. because it's so huge um, absolutely you know and which is part of the strategy no doubt I mean, we've seen this, seen it since 2010 that government try and put the blame on local authorities for, for any, for any sort of issue. So, I mean, the classic example, of course, is austerity, imposing austerity on local authorities. It's near the sort of 50% mark since 2010. And of of course, it's the local authorities that have to eat the cuts. So, you know, cut to youth services or whatever services it may be, you know, that's come from the local council. It's not come from the national government. And I think, you know, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings were trying to play exactly the same game with Greater Manchester and local and local leaders and saying we're working in partnership with them. And so the, the local leaders have to take a significant proportion of the responsibility for the local local lockdowns and I think Andy Burnham has said well if we genuinely are working in partnership then you need to listen to what my community needs to be able to deal with this crisis and and not leave communities that have already been at the brunt of 30 40 years of uh, of economic issues because of deindustrialization even worse off and then the pol- and then you know the national government have the audacity to turn around and say Andy Burnham's playing politics i mean it's it- it's horrendous what they're trying to do. And, and I'm glad that Andy Burnham sort of spoke up for, for his community. And unfortunately, it sounds then, obviously, the, for viewers, we're, we're, we're sat here at quarter past five on the, the 20th of the 10th. And uh, Boris Johnson just made an announcement and none of us have seen it yet. But it sounds as if Manchester is in lockdown then, is it? Yeah, by the sounds um, the tier three will have been imposed by now. I would actually like to try and insert some level of hope into the message, yeah. if possible. That's not allowed on this podcast. Oh, <laughs> don't have any of that. I think what's really important is that while I've been here talking about how disgusted I am about the government's failures and how disgusted I am about the failures of employers, and we've been specifically talking quite a lot about universities, but I think there are other employers behaving in a very disappointing way as well. There is still room for some hope and it's about how we as communities come together and work together 
And, you know, we were talking just now about Manchester going into a tier three and, and how Andy Burnham has been standing up for his local population. I think that model, it's, it's similar to what trade unions do, isn't it? We represent our members and the people that we are trying to defend, but we do that rooted in listening. And I think it just shows the power of what happens when people come together. And I'm just going to plug that um, for any of your listeners who want to kind of put their name behind a call for fair funding and a move to online learning, UCU has a petition at fundthefuture.org.uk forward slash protect dash staff dash and dash students and I can give you that link and anyone can sign it to show their support and it is one piece of the puzzle it's another way that we can act collectively to put some pressure on this government and on employers to do the right thing. That's great Vicky I think what we'll do is we'll put the link to that when we tweet this out we'll also put the link to that petition on there as well. Thank you so much for coming on today that has been uh, it's been really great to have you on we've really enjoyed it and it was really informative I think me and Tom were, were both saying in, in, in the gap in between takes there just how sure. good you are you're a great representative for your union and, and, and for all your members. No problem. And um, yeah, we'll, um, we'll have to catch up with you and, and see how this, your, your campaign's going. This has been really good for me as well. So thank you ever so much for the invite. And it's really a, quite a privilege to have a space to, to talk about things in that greater level of detail. So if ever you want me or any others of us back again, please just let me know. It'd be really good to, to do another Certainly one. Certainly will. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Vicky. And we're joined now by Kathleen Clark. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, how are you doing? You okay? I'm very well, thank you, James. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, we're going to ask you a couple of questions. We've got one to begin with, if you don't mind. Um, in your role as youth officer for Open Labour, obviously we spoke about this at the beginning of the podcast. There is a petition that you guys have organised and it's basically calling on on the UK and devolved governments to end the COVID crisis on our campuses. Um, as thousands of students, as, as listeners will know, are locked down at university at the moment. Do you want to give us a little bit of an update about this petition and how it's going? Sure. So uh, I'm Open Labour's youth officer. Um, it's a fantastic role. I'm very, very proud to be doing it. Uh, I'm also running to be chair of Young Labour, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. We um, will. So a few, <laughs> a few weeks ago, we launched a petition uh, to end the COVID crisis on our campus, on our campuses. Um, we saw over the summer that uh, American students were going back into their universities and there were a lot of problems. And then we saw uh, Scottish students were going back mm. into their universities and there are multiple, yeah. there are a multitude of problems. Um, and we saw this happening and we knew that universities and the government had had you know months to plan this and we couldn't see any planning and we were starting to get a little bit worried uh, so as an open labor youth officer i speak to students all the time i speak to young people consistently um, and they were really really concerned and they were they were given assurances by their universities by their mm. halls by their accommodation that everything would be fine that face-to-face -face teaching would carry on um, that you know to borrow a phrase from Theresa may nothing has changed but actually, let's be honest, it's completely changed. And the past, you know, nine or 10 months for young people have been a terrible experience and they've really come out badly in this crisis. Um, you know, as a side note, if you ever thought the Conservatives cared about young people, I think 2020 was the year to prove 
you know, to sure. prove that hypothesis yeah. wrong. Um, yeah. But anyway, going back to this, uh, going back to this fantastic petition, um, we were we were lucky enough to to write a petition to call for food and basic supplies for those who are self isolating um, to be uh, for for quarantining students. So that basically means that students that are in halls that have to self isolate for whatever reason, um, they can get free food or free basic supplies if they need it. Yeah, we've just had Vicky Blake on, as you'll know, um, and she's, she was telling us about some of the rescue packages that some of our students have been given, you know, sort of pot noodles and, um, you know, really sort of really basic food. And, and, you know, and there was even one instance of where somebody, uh, a Muslim student was given uh, non-halal meat, you know, it's, it's, it's been terrible, hasn't it? Just, I mean, just to add another example there, um, I was reading an article uh, the other day by Lancaster uh, Uni Labour Club who had said yeah. that um, it was £18 a day I think uh, for a food box um, that they were offering students when actually and that's a huge amount of money for a student anyway and that's a huge amount of money for a student who can't sure. work because they're self-isolating yeah. and that's a huge amount of money for any I think it's a huge amount of money well, to anybody, pay for food anyway definitely. I couldn't pay it I no, definitely couldn't pay it so yeah. and they saw in Lancaster that um, that students were going hungry or they mm. were just eating cereals and cereal and crisps. Yeah. But to be honest, like isolation is a tough experience and isolation without any food is arguably even worse. Mm. And then isolation with bad Wi-Fi because everyone's, you know, everyone's in the halls at all times. So the Wi-Fi is always maxed out. You're with people that you don't really know or that you might not, you know, that you might have met a couple of times and you're maybe thousands away, thousands of miles away from your parents or your family or your home. Like it just seems like this is this was a disaster waiting to happen, and students were given assurances by universities that they'd be taken care of, and we haven't seen it, and it's it's so it's so sad, and I don't think people have kind of sat back and thought about the mental health crisis, um, obviously this like food insecurity, uh, people aren't thinking about courses, like it's it's it, it it's so it makes me really angry and it makes me really upset. And then I read an article the other day, I think it was on, I think it was like, uh, I think it was on the Telegraph where it was described as lockdown in university, the UK's most expensive prison. Mm, yeah. And it was like, yes. I, I just read it and I couldn't believe, I, I just couldn't believe what I was reading. But I have actually, I've spoken to lots of students who have said the exact same thing. And it's, it's so sad and so little is being done. And, you know, it's, it's great to be, a, you know, being a Labour member is fantastic because you get to point out all of the things that are going wrong and you get to try and think about solutions and try and find solutions. And that's what we're desperately trying to do in Open Labour. And that's what I'm desperately trying to do at the minute. Um, so the petition has gone really, really well. We've got a lot of traction on it, but there's a lot more to be done. And this problem isn't going away. This problem is only going to last throughout the winter and possibly also into next year until there's some kind of vaccine or cure or the test and the test and trace app actually works like when will that be we don't know um but it's this isn't going away this is a long this is a long-standing problem and things desperately need to be done to be quite honest so what what what's the outcome of the petition are you who you presenting it to how many signatures do you need etc um, so we'll be looking to speak to hopefully um, Emma, Emma Hardy and Kate yeah. Green at some point. Um, and yeah. we're just trying to organise meetings with them at the minute. Mm. Um, but we're, look, we've been amazed about how, how great this, uh, this petition has gone. We've got, we've got comments and we've got feedback from all parts of the party. And that's, that's great to hear. I also know that there are, you know, there are young Labour clubs throughout the country that are trying to do their best for students. And there are, you know, they're working with food banks, they're working with um, other clubs, they're working with universities. And they're, they're trying to move the needle on this issue. But to be quite honest, I, I just, 
I just think that this, this could have all been avoided. It's one of those things that they mm. were promised, these students were promised face-to-face, face-to-face teaching and now aren't getting it. So they're getting online teaching, which, you know, is a thing in itself, but they should have been up, universities and halls should have been upfront in that. If that was going to be the case, then they should have been upfront in that. And there are a lot of, a lot of courses that I've spoken, of students I've spoken to here on courses, there have been huge issues with, are we going back to full teaching? When will that be? Like, what's the point of me being here? Why can't I just do this from home? And why am I paying the full amount of money when the, when the students this time last year got a completely different experience and paid the exact same amount? Well, I, I just, it's, it seems to be like a, a cluster of, a, of disasters, like combined. And yeah, it's, it's very yeah. sad. And young people are just paying the brunt of this completely. And it's, I mean, it's so I mean you, you know, we were speaking about this earlier with Vicky, but we'll say again that uh, university is marketed as a consumer product now, isn't it, unfortunately? So it is essentially false advertising to say that you're going to go into you know, an institution for face-to-face teaching, but end up with online. And obviously that has its own problems. But we, you mentioned Emma Hardy. We had her on this podcast a couple of months ago before students went back, but well into the COVID crisis. And I'm sure she'll meet with you because she's, um, she's, mm. she does understand that just because young people aren't necessarily at high risk of dying or developing serious con- uh, complications from this. I mean, it doesn't mean they haven't suffered. And, that, and that's what it comes down to. And you're was, committing Emma Hardy to a meeting. With I am, Kathleen. yeah. I am, yeah. The, the, uh, staff will be If you're listening, Emma, <laughs> Tom's committed serious, to yeah. another half. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, going back to the food thing, I've just, I remembered this, this example while you were speaking. There was a case in America, and obviously, I know Open Labour and different people and, and the, the Labour Front Bench have been looking at America as an example of what not to do in a lot of things. That goes further than university. And they had a student that came back and he had to, all the whole halls of residence had to isolate in Chicago or something. And he ended up with scurvy because they gave him pot noodles and noodles to eat for like something like three months. And because every time somebody got COVID in the whole hall block, they had to isolate. So he was isolating for about three months and ended up with scurvy, which is, uh, I think it's vitamin C, isn't it? Like a severe lack of vitamin C. I'm not surprised that, that students aren't getting vitamin C and vitamin D. It's like crazy, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not surprised to hear, to hear that at all. Like I, I don't know from these food boxes that the universities are supposed to be providing, like how nutritious are the meals? Are they communicated with the students beforehand? Or is it just, I've read, I've read on some universities' um, websites that they're just giving away uh, like vouchers to local pizza places or fast food joints. Well, that's nice, but it's a long-term thing. So you've got to really think about how they're providing consistent, nutritious meals. You'd think and that'd be one of the easiest things to do. It, you would. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> you, you, I really, mean you really would think about that, yeah. I, I mean, you know, just to move away from the, from the uh, topic of food, yeah. I think we've also got to look at this mental health crisis. I think that, um, I think that there are a lot of young people who already have mental health crisis at, crises at uni. Um, and that was before COVID even started. We knew that the mental health provisions were not good enough before COVID started. We knew the system wasn't working uh, and we didn't take action then. And now it's just additional. It's just on and on and on. So if you struggle to learn or you have a mental health issue anyway, it's probably not got better as you've come, as you've arrived at uni. Like it, it's probably made it, you know, it probably hasn't helped. And then on top of that, if you struggle to learn anyway, so you need like extra support or you need the face-to-face teaching or you have a, you know, you have a learning disability. I don't, I've seen no evidence from a lot of universities that they're even being catered for. So, so if you're not providing the basic service of education, 
what are you what is the point of a university what is the point of us doing higher education these students have gone in there with the best of it like in good faith made these agreements with these universities and have put aside a lot of time and energy to be and a lot of work of course to be at that university they've studied for two years to get there mm. minimum and instead the universities are just throwing it back in, in, in the students faces and it's it's not good enough and it should have been a case of okay we've seen the problems. the government has seen the problems and it's and it should have acted six seven eight months ago and it shouldn't have let it it shouldn't have let it got to this stage and yeah. it's 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 a it's a crying shame and i i just the, i just worry like i worry so much about young people in this I, I just think that i just think that the tories don't care about young people is my honest is my my like overarching well, hypothesis about well, this crisis yeah i mean i mean it's hard enough moving to university for the first time anyway moving away from your family if you've if you've lived it with your parents i know some students haven't but if you live with your parents for 18 years and you move out for the first time or 17 years then it's going to be hard enough and obviously moving during the pandemics makes it more difficult and hopefully it is a once in a hundred year thing so not many people have to deal with it for another hundred years but you know the mental health thing's interesting because what what needs to be done about that then because obviously there's there's the funding issue that's been long standing for at least a decade now where young people haven't been looked after properly in terms of mental health services which is the most you know young people largely suffer from mental health issues and they do physical ones so what what needs to be put in place now then is it is it online counseling online mental health support because obviously if they're locked in there halls of residence or the houses or something like that then something needs to be done but what do you think actually practical steps immediate practical steps need to need to change to kind of potentially save people's lives i think my my honest opinion is there needs to be a personalized mental health support program for every single student in a university and even if that's not in halls even if that's you know they're a master student living at home like yeah. it doesn't matter if they're in halls or they're not in halls there should in my opinion there really should be a personalized mental health support program and that should really last for the next year if not more and i think you know i, I realize that might be expensive but i think it's a justified i think it's a justified cost to be quite honest well i mean it because, should it should come in with the cost of the university tuition fee shouldn't it really i mean nine thousand pounds a year you'd think you'd think you think that yeah you think that yeah there's a lot of yeah I, I think this is i think this is just one of the problems of the marketization of education like i think this is just one of the of the many problems yeah and i know i know that it's a tough like moving to university is tough anyway it's not sometimes it can be a great experience but sometimes it isn't and then I, I could only imagine like the struggle that young people are going through. And then let's be honest, you know, you can go through university. If you're in your final year of university or you're graduating this year, what are you graduating into? A job market? Like there is like what job market? There, there are very few jobs. There are people losing. There are people becoming redundant every single day. Like more every single week, we see more and more people on the job market. We see more and more people being plunged into poverty. And I don't know what the government is doing, but it's not enough. So what, where is the light at the end of the tunnel in this situation? I just, I, I'm, I'm so like, I'm so, it makes me so angry and upset because I think the, I think, and you know, maybe it's just my opinion, but I always thought that the Conservatives rallying call was unleash Britain's potential. And if you're going to do that, you have to start with young people because they are the ones with the most potential. So mm. we've seen this is, this is a classic example of the government saying one thing and then doing the exact opposite well, and that is like in my opinion it's one of the worst things about our government now is that they're yeah. just not doing what they said they should be we saw that last night didn't we with the free school meal vote 
it, it doesn't stretch to just students and, and 16 to 18 year olds. And, no, it doesn't. It's, it's children as well. <laughs> I mean, call and, me well, a cynic. Know. Call me a cynic. But at the moment, you know, all the communities and or cohorts of people that seem to be under attack and underfunded and, and disregarded by the government are, you know, areas that are heavily labour, Liverpool, Manchester, Nottingham, <laughs> your hair's going into tier three, students, people um, that are perhaps... Uh, disadvantaged as well you know these sort of uh, classic constituencies for the Labour Party and the government I mean is that is that really cynical of me to say that but uh very you know, cynical and... you never catch me being that cynical <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean this I'm sure there's something sure there's something to that I'll uh, leave uh, the I mean, uh, listeners to make their mind up <laughs> well I, I think I think in the Marcus Rashford debate I think there's also something to be that hasn't been spoken about which is uh, a charity that I'm very close to is a charity called Magic Breakfast so Magic Breakfast gives, um, you know, two or three million children that are maybe insecure, food insecure is what they categorise them as, um, a breakfast which costs 37 to 38p per child. Um, so whether that's like basically a bagel, whether that's some kind of cereal, whether that's a juice. And what they found and what Magic Breakfast has found, and you can, you can see it on their website if you Google it. If kids get that breakfast, they are more likely to get better results because they are actually, they are clocked on for the day and they are ready to learn. So this is an example of how a sort of really small investment for young children, for primary school children and secondary school children, it could just it could just improve the lives. It could improve the potential. It could like imagine how fantastic if every single child had a good breakfast. Could you imagine how fantastic the grades that they would have would be? Could you imagine how easy it would be for teachers to teach kids because they wouldn't be hungry? And let's be honest, you know, when we're hungry, we're not in great moods. And imagine if you're five or six years old and you get one meal a day. Or if you're on holiday, you know, holiday hunger is another campaign. You know, these kids are supposed to be learning online, but they're not eating anything. Like, how, how can we how can we have that? How can we look at ourselves as the, what, the fifth richest country in the world who is unable to feed children? Like, I just I just don't understand. Like, in my head, it seems to be a founding principle of our nation is that we should be able to feed children, that the state should be able to provide for those children. Like, I just... And there's one of the kind of one of the things that I care about a lot. So I, I've at several hustings, I've like got out my soapbox and stood on it with this with my magic breakfast promotions. But I, I feel like it's totally like the, the, the investment is so small into a child, but it pays off massively in the long haul. Like they've seen they've seen sci like scientific studies saying that if a kid has a magic breakfast every single day, they are less like they are more likely to get good grades. They're less mm. likely to be like referrals. They are more likely to do well in later life. Like. It's so clear to see and why the government isn't unleashing the potential of young, young people and students is beyond and above it's, me. It's um, how the narrative has been spun now, isn't it? Between that there was a Tory MP yesterday that stood up in the free school meals debate in Parliament that said he wasn't, he wasn't about to nationalise children, which essentially nationalize means... Nationalise children. Yeah, he, wasn't, he was essentially saying that he doesn't believe the state should be responsible for looking after children. It should be the responsibility of parents. But for that to be true, I mean, that, that works on a premise that the parents are looked after or in a position to look after. Or that we live in a fair and equal society. Yeah, the, the kids in the first place. And it's not because parents don't want to look after their kids. If you speak to any parent in the world, I'm pretty sure that they'll all tell you that the, the, the first, their first line of care is for their kids. They'll, they'll, eat, they'll go hungry before their kids do. 
And yeah, these, these are people choosing between heating and eating. Like yeah, the well, child, like the child should always come first, and the child should never, like, you should never be disadvantaged by your parents' financial situation or your parents' actions. Like, we have to invest in our children. Like, because if we're not doing that, how how on earth are we going to be this fantastic nation? Like, how on earth are we going to go out into the world and pr produce the next leaders, produce the next like produce the next companies, produce the next parliaments, produce, produce anything that we want to, the next sports people. How are we going to do that if we're, not, if we're not even able to feed children? Like for me, it just seems like such a, seems like such a waste in potential. And I could, you know, I could only imagine what it would be like if we could feed, all, if we could feed our children. Like imagine how fantastic they're I mean, just quickly on that, on Ben Bradley said yesterday, I'm reading this, he basically said it's not as simple as Marcus Rashford makes out. Feed, feeding children is not as simple, but it, it is though, isn't it? it? It is that simple. I mean, most kids that are eligible for the free school meals have parents that are in work and in work being the thing that people often miss or it's spun in the, the right wing tabloids that all these people are benefit fraudsters. They don't deserve anything and they don't want to work when actually the, the, the stats are that they all actually have jobs. They're just not paid enough. They can't get enough hours. They have, they've had the jobs affected by pandemic and the state therefore needs to step in to stop people dying like it has done with the COVID pandemic. So I just don't understand why this is different. Classic Ben Bradley. Don't get me started on Ben Bradley. I'm from Mansfield. You know, Mansfield's a safe Tory seat now. Absolutely you know, he's out with, oh, I mean, you know, Mansfield, there's huge issues with child poverty in that area. And to have a, an MP to represent that area that is so dismissive like that, that just doesn't understand the issues um, and make it makes comments that like that that are so damaging and divisive I mean it, it's just so sad it really is sad just as a final word on this before we go on to your campaign because I'm conscious of time have you spoken to the UCU about this because the petition reading it calls for a lot of the similar things like online teaching and things like that what what's the feeling that you've had from them uh, good good so far we're just beginning kind of we're just in introductory talks to be quite honest but um we think we think that what we've really asked for is like the bare minimum, to be quite honest with you. We think that the things that we're asking for, like a, a commitment, you know, this, this understanding that young people or students should have, you know, access to food. That's a reasonable cost. Podcast listeners, go on, go on our label list article and read our demands and see if you agree. But I think it's the bare minimum that our government can be doing. And we will work with anyone to make that happen. Brilliant. You're standing to become the chair of Young Labour ballots have dropped this week so what would you say to young labor members listening to this now i mean it's a two-horse race now is that right because it's officially a two-horse race because another candidate has dropped out we won't go into why but another candidate has dropped out so why should young members back your campaign it is a two-horse race now so my what we kind of thought about and what i thought about before entering this race was this concept of that young people deserve better and youth deserve better is what our hashtag on, on, on my campaign is and what our team has worked so hard to push. And what that means is, is that young people within the labour movement or just in society in the minute, um, whether it's the last 10 months or the last 10 years, have not got a fair deal. And that's, that's kind of what our whole campaign is run about. It's this understanding that young people deserve better than what we're currently getting. And whether that's, you know, from the party, we can go into that later, whether that's from our prime minister, whether that's from our education secretary, whether that's if you're a student in lockdown, whether that's you're a young person who's just left school and has no job or doesn't have any prospects and doesn't know what, is, what they're going to do next. You don't know when the next paycheck's coming, whether that's if you're a young person who's in a job but has severe mental health issues or the work is insecure, whatever, whatever you're doing in life, I think young people have got, 
I mean, even through austerity, I don't think young people were looked after, but I think especially in the last 10 months, we've gone through, we will go through, essentially, we're going through this COVID crisis, and then we'll go through a Brexit crisis, which I think will impact young people disproportionately. And then after that, if we, if we make it through that, we're going to go through an environmental crisis, which I think young people will have to deal with as well. So I, what I generally feel like is that young people deserve so much better than what they're getting. So why am I running for chair? So ba based upon that, what I think we can do is provide a space for young Labour, provide a space for our young Labour members. So there, we think there are over 100,000 young Labour members. Those are people between 14 and 26. So there's a lot going on. You know, when you're 14 and when you're 26, there's a lot of things going on in your life. But there is an understanding that I, I think at the minute the party does take young people for granted and is maybe not as um, outreaching to young people and kind of expects them to be on the doorstep come election time and expects their votes and isn't kind of working with young people as much as they could be. Um, I think that young people could, you know, I've seen so many, so many out of this year, like so many campaigns have come up, have come up whether that's like Fridays for the Future, the school strikes, whether that's the envir like environmental justice campaigns, whether that's the Black Lives Matter campaign, and they've been run by young people. So we know that there are a lot of young people calling out for change, and we know that, that a Labour government would benefit every single young person in the UK. So I kind of, so, so to kind of just get back to what, what I think I can do, um, I think that young labour could be a fantastic place for, for young people to meet uh, and for young people to become a campaigning force, like a national campaigning force that we need to take on the Tories. And I think, I think that's kind of the reason why I'm running, because I think that young people deserve better. And I think it's about, it's about time that we started getting some, some real change. And that's, you know, kind of in one, in one shot while I'm running. Um, a lot of conversations I've had with young Labour groups or young Labour members um, suggest that young Labour is a toxic place to be. It's not very nice at the minute. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of harassment. And that kind of I think that that just needs to end because it's not good yeah. enough. And this is not a place like open Labour is. I'm so lucky to be an open Labour member because it's a lovely environment to be in. And open Labour members are so nice to me. I've never had a bad experience. And to be quite honest, if we disagree, we do it amicably and we have that respect for each other. And yeah, unfortunately, in, labor, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and, and in Young Labour, I haven't seen that. Um, I'd also say that we have, a, we have an issue where Young Labour members kind of go through Labour, but aren't ever really signposted to things that might help them or things that, you know, if you're interested in doing policy, we should direct them to like, you know, things that can help them, you know, programs that can help with policy. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're a woman, for example, um, you can go into the Labour Women's Network and there should be a signpost. There should be like a little kind of yeah. guide about mm. what's the best thing to do. Or if you're interested in trade unionism and understanding the links between trade unions and social societies and young labour, should, it should be a lot more linked. And I don't think there are as much. Um, and then the kind of final point, I guess, is like, I'd love to provide like on the ground support and funding for young for young labor groups and i think they're missing that at the minute they need like a structure and an organization and whether that's just providing you know uh, an updated constitution and the code of conduct so everyone knows like what the basics are to be a young labor member or whether that's like demanding some funding whether that's saying you know we would love we would like a like a funding formula for young labor members so that they give into the system but they also get out of it um we've been so lucky on this campaign to get so much great experience and so many great people have have endorsed my campaign and i'm so proud and i've looked around at other other young kind of other equivalent young labor groups uh, in yes in usos in our you know our friends in europe and they have professionalized youth wings and they've said that by having a professionalized youth wing by having kind of structures and funding and formula and support on the ground 
um, that they've actually, they think that that's contributed to electoral success. Yeah. And I, I hope that Keir knows, and I'm sure he does. That I'm sure he does, yeah. The road to 2021. Tom, sign him up to something. Yeah, I'll have words. But no, I mean... <laughs> like no, I, just, I, well, I was merely saying that, like, I hope that Keir knows, like, the, the road to 2021 are winning next year, and then the road to 2024, it, they need young people. Young people are a key ingredient. Yeah. Um, and I, think it's, I think it's time to kind of make that, make that argument that you can't take young people for granted. But there are young people that desperately want change. And I think that's, if we can capture that as a, as a movement, I think that we'll end up, you know, we'll have some fantastic young Labour members across the UK that are working together to achieve success. And I mean, that for me, it's about unleashing the potential of young Labour members, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm coming to the end of my time in young Labour. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, um, so it's on, is it under 30 now? It's under 20. It's, under 20. It's 26, 14 to 26. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm 25, so I'm nearly too old. James, you're way gone, mate. Way gone. <laughs> but, you look great, James. Don't, you know, don't take it off. Today, take, it off. <laughs> take it off, James. Don't worry about it. But, um, yeah, I mean... Younger heart, young heart, James. <laughs> it's, about, it's about unleashing the policy, isn't it? The policy ideas of young, young members, because I was never signposted to Young Labour. The only things I heard about it when I was just joining the party when I was kind of 15 was negative thing it was all yeah. about factionalism and i didn't know what the factions were i mean i've never been part of a faction ever open labor barely a faction but that's the first kind of <laughs> exterior group i've ever joined it, it just it just never occurred to me so i some of the people that i knew the members that have gone on to work in the civil service in in high level jobs in in areas like transport that we need a lot of a lot of policy flavor on they could have had their potential unlocked within the party and within the movement. And I think it's a shame that they missed out. Um, if maybe if Young Labour was a more welcoming or less toxic environment, it might have, you know, it might have been different. But there's an issue in the, the Labour Party and the culture of the Labour Party uh, overall, you know, with um, issues around people coming in, not being made to feel welcome, factionalism. You know, obviously there was issues around bullying and things like that, but also the Labour Party being something that's so difficult, the structures of it, something so difficult to understand. It's so, it's just an enigma to, to people and um, it's not accessible at all. It's sort of, you have to be in the party for a long time before you really get your head around Around, you know how the party works um, how yeah. to make change within the part uh, within the party how to influence policy and the rest of it um, so hierarchical but you know those issues in, in young labor in, are, are even more stark to a certain extent certainly from my experience of it um, and it has to change because young people have so much potential and y- you've summed it up really well there Kathleen um, you know I, I think we are in danger young people are really galvanized by Jeremy Corbyn and the last leadership are they as galvanized now by the current leadership are we going to lose that entire constituency and all that talent that's there that that can help to move the Labour Labour Party and the Labour movement forward well I mean look so I signed up for Jeremy Corbyn I got into this movement because of him and I wrote an article a couple of months ago when uh, when Keir came into office basically saying like young people are the key ingredient for electoral success so don't Mm. forget us and we're the key ingredient like you know, we, we speak so much about this, but I'd love to have a young Labour where someone could come in, someone could enter young Labour and then kind of say, OK, I'm really interested in policy or I actually really want to be a councillor or actually I'm really good at door knocking and I really like or, or actually there's a lot of litter on my street and I'd like to do something about that. Or um, well, me and my mate have this idea and like maybe maybe Labour could take it on, but we don't quite know. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to be able to, for them to kind of go on to a support hub. But that was clearly signposted about how to get all of that, how to get it all done. 
and like whatever they wanted to do it's not it's not for me to tell members what they want to do but it's just for me to provide the structure so that they can achieve their potential and they can go after and they can be given the tools to succeed and i i know with with the, the vast majority of young people that i've spoken to on this campaign they are so enthusiastic and they desperately are crying out for change and they want things to be so much better and if you can if we can just provide them the tools and the support to do it Mm. it's gonna you know they're gonna take care of they're gonna take care of it all and boris johnson's got a huge problem on his hands let me tell you that right now like he's he's not gonna know what's hit him to be quite honest if we've got a national campaigning force where people are given the tools to be successful for me i think that's that's the key to a labor victory that's the keystone to a labor victory like, a, people, we, we can't take young people for granted anymore like i think 2019 showed us that like we can't take anything for granted everything's up for grabs mm. anything's losable and anything's winnable and i think if we're able to produce that produce that force of young people we're going to be on to some big successes in the future i think and that's a great rallying cry to end on to be honest i think it's mm, me too well said kathleen yeah very good okay well look thank you so much for coming on the show today good luck with the petition and good luck of course with the campaign um i'll tell you what we will put a link to the petition when we tweet this episode out as well there's also a link we're also putting a link to vicky's uh, just to remind viewers a link to vicky's petition as well aren't we tom yes yes the ecu petition yeah yeah, so there's two petitions there for listeners to sign up to and get involved with, I suppose. Okay, thank you very much then, Kathleen. Thank you.